Okay. Here we are in the car, doing the usual pre-interview. I'm here too early. All I can do at this point is sit in the car thing that I tend to do. I want to say that I am hideously unprepared for this interview, hideously underprepared. Uh, I am definitely nervous. But the thing that I realized today, and I think I've always kind of known on some level, is that there is no way to be fully prepared to interview Pio. Pio is quite literally a living legend and his bibliography runs easily into the thousands of pages 24 hours which came out in 96 followed by Fitzroy the biography in 2015 Heidi in 2020 these books are monsters and I have always thought about how wonderful it would be to sit down and interview Pio. And then my next thought has always been, how on earth would I interview him though? What would I ask? But this opportunity has just come across my desk in the last couple of weeks. Pio's, uh, the group around him, which is known as Collective Effort, um, are, have put together an exhibition of concrete poetry which is going to be put on at the Nicholas Building here in Melbourne just for a couple of weeks. It's launching this Friday night um, and I had the intention to get this out earlier but things got in the way. But they're putting together this exhibition that is just focusing on concrete poetry. It's a fascinating idea. I don't know that I fully understand what their goal is with it just yet. I'm sure I will get to understand that over the next hour or so. But this is given a frame for me to work within. So all I need to do tonight is to just ask them about this exhibition, what it is they are hoping to achieve, what their thinking has been, and just sit back and see what happens. I'm just so acutely aware that Pio's story and the story of collective effort as well just touches so many major parts of Australian poetry history. But it's a subterranean history. It's a history that's not online because collective effort is not, uh, they do not have friendly feelings towards the internet. And it's outside academia. So a lot of this story is not recorded in um, those sort of formal ways and so part of me just wants to make this into like a five-hour epic so that we can get everything on the record but I don't think that's what they want either so I don't know I, I feel massively underprepared um, I always feel that way before any interview but this time it's for real I think but also that I don't think I don't think there's any way to control where this conversation is going to go. That's why I'm recording the intro before I have the conversation is because I just know that this one's almost certainly going to go completely off the rails. And I thought it would possibly be kind of amusing for you guys to hear 
my trepidation sitting here in the car. It is a beautiful starlit night. I am in my old suburb where we used to live. Um, I used to catch the tram up here and occasionally I would see Pio on the tram <laughs> and I would think, there's Pio, I should go over and introduce myself. My first experience of seeing him read was at a launch for I think rabbit number three or four I don't know if I should include this story but I I really want to so so uh rabbit was being launched at Imbigan Books which is just near the state library there and Pio had a, a poem in the journal that year I I might have as well I can't remember whether I was in that one or not but um yeah, we went to see the launch. We saw all these readers. It was, honestly, I remember nothing about any of the other readers that night. This is going back quite a ways, maybe 2011. Just moved to Melbourne. And at the end of the reading, Pio got up and he said, I'm going to read this poem for you. It took me three years to write. And then he launched into this thing and it was the most powerful it was like a force of nature this reading this poem that had these incredible refrains in it and all this detail and I've come to understand now that it was part of his sort of ethos of creating the everything poem the poem that can hold everything inside it but the thing was that you know the the rule for the evening I think was that the readers had five minutes and and Pio did not go for five minutes at all <laughs> But we didn't care. We were all spellbound by this reading, except for one guy. <laughs> there was one guy. I don't know who this was. Um, I could speculate, but look, we are going back too far and my memory is failing me. He was not happy about the fact that Pio was taking up all this time and he was pacing up and down the bookshop and under his breath, or not so under his breath, he was mumbling, five minutes bio they said five minutes they said five minutes <laughs> this sort of became part of the poem you know the everything poem it can include everything uh yeah he was he's a force of nature and you know that was so early in my um in my time here in Melbourne that was I was like okay these these poets don't always play nice um but they are They've definitely got something to say. I've never forgotten that night. And yeah, now finally, finally, what are we now? Would we, it's 13 years later. I'm finally going to meet Pio and other members of Collective Effort and the co-curator of the exhibition, Vicky Perrin, who set this one up for me. Thank you, Vicky. I have no idea what I'm walking into. Wish me luck. Here goes. Beauty. Um, did anyone have any questions before we begin? You didn't finish. Sorry, we interrupted you. You said I we're allowed to interrupted myself. We're allowed to say we didn't like 
Yeah, if anything concerns you, because sometimes mm. that does happen. Yeah. I, I leave sure. and then people think, oh, I said that thing. Um, and it's just no problem at all for me to go uh, in and cut it out. Oh, that's so, very, so if you want to nice. leave libel in it, you can? You can. Oh, wow. <laughs> if you want to. Isn't that good? Don't do it. <laughs> we gathered at the house that Pio shares with his partner, Sandy Caldo. Pio speaks first. Sandy's also at the table. She is a concrete poet through her ceramics work, and she's also a visual artist. Her work is also represented in the exhibition, which is called Wayward Forward. Peter Murphy is there. You'll recognise him as the more softly spoken male voice. When I went today to see the exhibition and, and I got to see Peter's work on the walls, I just thought, that's it. That's it for me. Victoria Perrin also joined us. She's the one who organised this conversation and she's been working with Collective Effort as well as writing about them for her PhD. So we start by hearing a bit about the history of Collective Effort, how it was created around a layout table and all the many publications that have been spawned through this group, including the hugely popular Workers' Poetry magazine 9 to 5 and the current magazine Unusual Work. You'll also hear mentions of people including Pio's sister Thalia, the Heidi artist Sweeney Reed, and Jazz Duke, who died in 1992, but whose legend very much lives on through collective effort and whose work is part of the exhibition as well. You'll hear the fire crackling in the background. I want to start by, just for those who have never heard of collective effort before, maybe getting a few of you to talk a little about, little bit about what it is and why it exists. Anyone can start. Well, I mean, it, it started in about 1978 as a name. Um, I mean, the activity of sort of a bunch of anarchists, in, you know, from Fitzroy in the, in the old days through a magazine called um, Fitzrot, um, which was my first poetry magazine. Um, it, when I did Panache, my book, we were looking for a, a press um, during the layout table and uh, we came up with sort of um, collective effort press kind of thing. And um, so the name stuck and as um, we did different ventures, the number of people involved went up and down, back and forwards and all over the shop and um, it sort of, there's no real kind of, um, there's a kind of hard core of people um, who have sort of stayed around long enough and to be kind of um, be called part of it type thing, um, but it, it's not a it, it's not a collective where you have unanimous decisions made. It's part of the emphasis is really on the effort, um, like when. Thalia wanted to do a magazine, she went off and, and did it um, under, under collective effort, but it was, uh, you know, she was doing actually a woman's uh, magazine in the 70s and stuff, but um, uh, so it was the people who were, who were sympathetic went along and did it, so they were part of the effort. Uh, when Yelcha did Migrant 7, you know, uh, those who got involved with that were involved with that. When we did 9 to 5, which became the largest poetry magazine in the country, we were eventually doing 3,000 copies an issue, um, over 20 issues, four, uh, four years, uh, five years, um, four issues a year. Um, we had what we 
then sort of laughingly printed in the magazine as too many to list productions, you know, <laughs> because people would be showing up, you know, stoned and drunk and drinking and and trying to collate a magazine around the table and yeah, um, yeah. and of course it should have taken you know only a weekend of course it went to two weekends you know as people showed up and didn't do any work. <laughs> I read that you had the party that was meant to be putting the magazine together and then you had the mop-up party which was actually putting the magazine together. Yeah that, that, that is very true yeah so so it you know the population of the ma you know the collective effort sort of goes up and down and back to front and um, the, the, the thing that we did was that after each kind of project, we kind of burned the mailing list so that it's, you have to invent it from scratch. But also by burning the mailing list, it sort of, it, it, it respected people's interest in the magazine that they were sort of signing up for but not necessarily every project that we were going to do. Okay, so it's like so you have to build that audience from scratch. From scratch, and we've done that two or three times, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. But in, in once, and you know, and it's actually, obviously, anti the computer mode practice, you know, where you hold on to all the emails and, and, and make sure that you send them as much spam as possible, you know. Um, so, uh, because you know the idea was that so we're not a business you know we're not we don't make money we just work out how much can we afford to lose and then we do it you know um, <laughs> I read somewhere that it was described as having an anarcho collectivist structure and I'm really interested in what that looks like day to day oh, you look yeah. a little bit yeah I, I don't I don't think it's an it, it, because you know, consensus on, on on an issue, you know, doesn't really happen. I mean, people say, no, I'm not interested. I think it's a crazy idea. I'm not going to do it or uh, I'm going to go and do something else, you know, so... Right, but those people who don't agree are not, like, kicked out. No, they, they just, just don't participate. No. They don't yeah. put the effort in, so yeah. they're not doing that project. Yeah, but yeah. they might come back for something later. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, I mean, people after a while, you know, if something's, you know pretty interesting you know they they join up you know um but um but like i said you know the population goes up and down all the mm -hmm. time and mm -hmm. um and it's been great that there's a a dedicated group of people who come to the gigs mm. who've followed mm. collective effort for so many years this is the unusual work launch yes unusual work like launches or, or other collective effort it's also stimulating too in that like you know, I used to go to those stapling get-togethers and all of that, and you have chats with people, you talk about what you're doing, and that rolls on over the years. So it's as much, um, you know, a cumulative discussion as, as well, you know. Yeah, yeah. And assembling mm. a book, it's quite a beautiful act, isn't it? Mm. Like you walk around the table in one direction, no talking, because otherwise mm. people might have two page 37s or something. <laughs> <laughs> so it became this weird act, nice well, well, yeah. One of the most interesting ones was when we were doing 9 to 5, the workers' magazine, you know, um, the, the cover didn't arrive on time uh, for the weekend, you know, for the Friday, Saturday, Sunday weekend, where everyone was coming around to collate. And so you can't kind of collate without the cover, you know. So, um, so we were desperate. And so what we did was that we decided that 
um, we'd hand write every cover, you know, 3,000 copies we're talking about here, you know. And so um, everyone was given um, um, text colours and, and um, people came up with ideas like spraying the covers with different colours, uh, uh, others, you know, scribbling. And my sister Athena, you know, she, she, she was going out, you know, she dolled herself up and all that. She came in to see what the, mm. crazies, what the crazies were doing. I don't know if you were there then. No, but I sometimes remember her comments on the scene. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. She was sympathetic. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And she yeah. said, you know, what are you doing? I said, ah, oh, the fucking covers didn't show up, you know. That's and incredible. she saw us with the text of colours and stuff and she said, look, I've got a whole box of lipsticks. Do you want them, you know? Mm. So we said, yeah. So she brought over the lipsticks and all of us, you know, were putting on lipsticks <laughs> and stuff, you know, and people were coming to the door late and all these men, women and children all with bloody lipsticks on, you know? Mm. And, and so we all came down, we started, so every, every cover had to have a kiss on it, you know, like <laughs> with the lipstick and the name and the number of the issue. So and I was just going to say the solutions were often more interesting than the problems. Like, <laughs> like, like when, when Missing Forms came out, mm -hmm. they printed um, Sweeney Reed's uh, rose poem, Blue, and another poem that was <laughs> it, meant to be... It, it was um, Barrett Reed's. Les Cossacks. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Pi brought this stamp out for Red Sea Blue, for Blue Sea Red. <laughs> Which oh I God. thought was a great concrete poem in itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, we're already like touching on so many parts of the history here. This is yeah, this is amazing. This is, this, this is a sorry to interrupt, but it's, this, this is a characteristic problem when you come late to the collective effort party. Is you start digging and then there's more, and then you just realise how long they've been doing it and how the variety oh. of what they've been doing, and you just feel like you've come at, at 2 a.m. to something that seemed like it's been a lot of fun for a long time. Yeah, this is how I've been feeling the yeah, last couple of days for trying to prepare for this interview. I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. Um, uh, but but what, what, what's interesting in that, in that process, in, you know, of the, the, the social elements that are, have come together kind of thing, was that it also generated the concrete poetry um, sort of movement, you know, of collective effort. I mean, I was publishing concrete poetry uh, in Fitrot, you know, mm. from the early days. Um, and But then it kind of, like, the concrete poets sort of, there was a big push to sort of say, well, let's have our own magazine instead of just mixing it with the straight poets, you know. Um, <laughs> the straight poets yeah, we, you guys. <laughs> yeah, no, no, well the straight poets was the, you know, well, we're, the, we're, the we're, we're both straight and bent, aren't we? Because well, <laughs> we do both. <laughs> we, absolutely, you know. Um, so then we did, uh, you know, the magazine called um, Born to Concrete. Um, oh, okay. And um, that had about five issues. Um, four. Uh, four issues. Yeah. Um, and Peter edited one of them. Um, and um, the you know, we were printing it off at, on the Anarchist Press and, and so it's all a bit shoddy and stuff um, by, you know, today's standards. But in those days, that's the best we could afford, you know. We didn't have lots of money, we didn't have lots of access to um, those things, but we were kind of chipping away at it. Mm. Um, and, and it kept that notion of a concrete poetry group or, or, or scene alive um, and later, another generation came along with, you know, uh, Tony Figala, who actually came out of Fitzrot. I mean, he, 
you know, um, and Pete Spence and, mm. and all that, who came a little later on, mm. you know, uh, to the mm. concrete poetry stuff. Um, it, it kind of kept it alive. Mm. Uh, in fact, I kind of bankrolled um, 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 some of those, um, uh, what was it called? Um, uh, Tony Fagallo's... Uh, uh. Oh, yeah. yeah. Late, the Later Mag. Yeah, the later magazine. Okay. Um, but but you know he was depressed, and he, he came around and, and mm. he, he said, "Oh look, I've got a I've got a photocopy machine. I've got no paper. I don't mm. know what to do." I said, "Why don't you do a magazine?" He said, "Yeah," and he said, "But I've got no money, you know." So I gave him a hundred bucks, and off off he went, you know, and started um, uh, doing about twenty issues, you know, mm. like. But but it's that it's that it's that kind of you know what we got, you know, we kind of share we we. You include as many people as in, who are interested in doing things, and then um, um, uh, um, you know just keep the ball rolling. Kind and of also thing. that because you had met everyone, you talked about what you're doing, mm. and you you not only knew what people were doing from what you saw in the magazine, but you talked about why they were doing it. Mm. So it was sort of like you 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 kind of. Drew on each other to an extent too, you know. Oh, well, that's, totally. That's, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I thought that was a lot of the strength of the thing that you, yeah. we were talking to each other, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and what we'd heard of other staff and seen and all of that. You well, know. that that was a big thing, you know, what, mm. sharing books and and, and yeah. sharing ideas and, and and discussion. Particularly Melbourne at that, you know, like in the seventies. And I was just thinking the Source Bookshop in the city was, they, mm. they started, Paul Smith started importing books from overseas. Whole Earth Bookshop initially, I think, and then it became Source. Whole? Okay. Whole, whole Earth. Whole Earth, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was um, the Whole Earth. It was at the top of Connell Street and then it moved further down. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was in a way bringing in this sort of stuff from overseas. And, and you know, like Melbourne was cut off because the big publishers, they weren't interested in yeah. that. What do you sit in Melbourne? Well, and they wouldn't let but stuff it, But in. even Australia-wide, really. I mean, right, right. You, you, I think you had, um, you had the, um, the Third World Bookshop in Sydney, which was um, uh, Gould, um, mm -hmm. who was fighting. And also Mark Rubo at Reading's Bookshop, you know, they were fighting to get imported American books because we were only allowed to get British books under some kind of trade agreement yeah. unless they couldn't supply in which case we could then get get it from america but it had to go through england first good lord yeah it, it was it was abysmal stuff and right? i remember going to paul smith's bookshop you know every time i was in the city and you saw all this stuff you never saw anywhere else yeah, you know? yeah and i should say as a, mm. as a good art historian um the source bookshop was fed as a as a buyer by a very competent uh, conceptual artist called Robert Rooney who um, you know you might never consider to put together with collective effort or something like this but when you draw up Melbourne as a map of connections and these guys are going to the source bookshop and they're getting their American books which Rooney was extremely knowledgeable about and, and stocking the, the books the shelves with um, you know, it, it all pieces together. There's no distinction between visual art and poetry and conceptual, conceptual yeah. art and the counterculture yeah. at that time. Mm. Right, right, the, right. The, the other important thing um, uh, to remember here, which um, is directly related to the concrete poetry uh, movement, is that 
the small London magazine explosion that was happening around the world, not just in mm. Melbourne. Um, uh, one, of, one of the features of the concrete poetry end of it was that they were always a listing at the back of the magazine of where you could get certain books, magazines, addresses and who the editors were. And so often, um, because we, you know, I mean, it wasn't just Whole Earth or Source or, 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 or readings where you could only get certain types coming through because they had quite a war for a long while. Um, what you would do is you would write off to these addresses in the back of the magazines and um, and literally you would be um, um, getting all these small magazines of visual poetry which was um, a, a, um, uh, you know, concrete poetry particularly was interested in the small magazine, you know, because they could do what you call now zines. Well, I don't like zines because they're too individualistic, but magazines are more like a magpie, you know, where you allow more people in. Um, and so you'd get all these small magazines of, of visual poetry, which you couldn't really get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. um, so there was this huge turnover. There was... Um, uh, um, Nicholas Zabrook, um, uh, the um, who used to do stereo headphones. Well, I used to get his magazines from Eng uh, England, you know, uh, England, or I think it was England, and um, I'm not sure if it's Scotland, but it's not Scotland, it was England. Uh, and uh, he, I used to get his magazines, and we used to have an exchange until I gave up on, on the postage. Postage was killing us, you know. Um, but just you continued, he, he, he continued there. Uh, uh, the international um, thing all, all the time. Um, uh, and then when um, uh, Zabruk, sort of um, stereo headphones had stopped, you know, that was kind of the end of my interest in him as a human being kind of thing. And, and then he ended up in Queensland uh, as a lecturer at one of the universities. Griffiths. Yeah. yeah, Griffiths was it, yeah. And he, um, and so it, it took him a me a while to just thinking is that the same bloke or what what's he doing in australia i mean you know what the fuck is he doing <laughs> yeah, it, it, <laughs> in queensland it's right well, and so and so he one day i he, he, he emailed um well, not emailed in those days mailed and, and said would i come up and do a gig for him and all that you know yeah zabrook should be mentioned because we haven't we haven't yet mentioned that we're doing this podcast for our own exhibition wayward forward on collective efforts concrete poetry but Zabrug is one of the only um, curators in Australia who was extremely knowledgeable and extremely switched on to concrete poetry and he did uh, an exhibition in the 80s called Visual Poetics in up in Brisbane but um, you know knew what was happening down in Melbourne even before he came to Australia yeah. through through correspondence and so he was an incredible figure, incredible mm. inspiration to to me at least. Yeah, right. Well let's mm. let's focus in on the concrete poetry aspect of it because I think if we try to cover every aspect of this history we, we could be here till three AM, which might not be bad. But um, maybe let's go around the table and just define for ourselves what we think concrete poetry is. Let's start it with you. Start Sandy. with me. Yeah. Well, I guess for me, it's very much based on the visual elements of poetry. In my particular case, it's often three-dimensional language because I, I often use ceramics to make the alphabet and make the words. Um, but it's 
using language in a very, uh, what would you call it, narrowed down, tight, short and visual kind of way and exploration of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so my things, my works, um, you know, they're works on walls as well, rather than works on pages. On they yeah. can be on pages, of course, but it's more like moving it into the gallery scene. Mm-hmm. And my personal work is as a visual artist for many years, so that's why I'm also involved in poetry, mm-hmm. being part of Collective Effort Press, mm-hmm. and the visual part is a great way to just explore things and look at language in a different way. Right, right, okay, so that's a, you're coming from that visual arts world. Yes. Pie? Um, the, 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 the thing about um, concrete um, poetry is that it questions what we, what we mean by a poem. And that's one of the big battles that's been happening in, in the poetics of Australia, is that you know, the, the very notion of what I would call a poem, the establishment and the straight uh, poetry world will not have a bar of it. They, they, they still haven't heard of Schwitters. They still haven't heard of the Dardras. You know, they don't know, they've got no idea what these people are about. And um, we've been trying to introduce and inject that kind of material into the system, you know, um, uh, uh, over all, all those years. So, uh, and the thing, my realisation when I came to Concrete Poetry was, was that it, it meant that all poetry had a visual element to it. You know, that was actually visual as opposed to sound, and it's another issue. But, well, it's a related issue, but um, the, the, uh, the fact that sort of the, the end of a line rhymes is a spatial consideration. You know, it's not, it's not you can't pretend that the spatial element doesn't exist in it. In fact, they make a point of doing that. Or in a pantoum where a certain pattern appears in the poem. That is a spatial element. Um, and, but the straight poets and people who support that kind of stuff don't acknowledge the spatial element of language as written, for example. And um, which is a kind of a blind spot that they have, which changes the way they look at the world and the universe and what they will accept as a poem. Mm-hmm. I actually, before we come to you, Peter, I'm just going mm-hmm. to um, read this little section because I just think it's amazing. Um, so this is part of uh, your introduction to a project called Off the Record Pie, which was published by Penguin in 1985. Because I just want to get unpack this idea of who the, who the straight poets in the establishment are. So you wrote, the poets of the late 60s, like the poets of the late 70s, has lit- had literally taken poetry out of the closet, away from the academy, out of the salons and into the streets. Poetry was losing its high art nose, its meaningful pause and its class disease larynx. People who hated poetry at school were now writing and printing and reading their work in public with all the arms and R's and all the popping P's the microphone could stand. And then a little further on you write, Um, These poets were, in effect, bypassing the stranglehold that academics like A.D. Hope, 
Vincent Buckley, Geoffrey Dutton, James Macaulay and others had on the production and distribution of poetry in Australia. It's so a great quote. I, I had to get on the record. <laughs> Sorry, what was your question? Well, well I, I suppose, does that still, to you, does that, does that grouping of people still represent that establishment, straight poetry? No, the straight poetry, I mean, that was true of the time. Now things have changed in the sense that the performance poets and, and, and the liberation poets, as I, I kind of call them, you know, like the, you know, or, or that, that have been now institutionalised as a subject in universities and in, in, and in um, uh, writing schools. And that institutionalisation is now the, the enemy. Um, not because of what so much that they produce, but what they exclude. Mm. Oh, I'm gonna. Mm, I know I need to come to you a bit, but I need I need you to unpack that a bit more. What do you mean by institutionalized? Well, let's say Melbourne University, they they've got a writing course. Well, do they do concrete poetry there? Do they do sound poetry? Do they do, they do vi um, visual or conceptual poetry there? What don't they do? The point is that they get their students and they say, look, you look like a woman, why don't you write like a woman? You write, yeah, so you look like a migrant, you write like a migrant. So they all go, well, you know, yes, I had bad sandwiches, everyone laughed at my sandwiches at school. <laughs> Vicky's right. trying not to laugh. But, but <laughs> that's what, that, but that's, you know, that, that's the basis. So the institutionalisation of the subject. But if you go over and say, Look, I've just done these number poems. They say, the bloke's fucked. You know, our, that's that not poetry. To, what does that have to do with you? Uh, yeah. yeah. And the point is that oh. the fact that it might be a migrant poetics being developed seems to be of no interest to them. Because the migrant element is that a lot of migrants need to study and get jobs. And so mathematics is one of those gateways into getting out of your condition, you know, to become a doctor or a lawyer or whatever you want to become. So mathematics then becomes, for me, a migrant issue. It's, a, it's not something that you can just say, oh, well, I'm not interested and it's too hard or yeah, um, type thing, and that I've got another choice, I can go and do something else. Mm. For, for a lot of the migrants, they can't do anything else. They've got to go there. The parents are pushing them. So the subject... I mean, we've had now, since, since the word ethnic was invented in 1974 by Grasby, uh, up to now we're talking something like about 50, 60 years <laughs> of the migrant experience. And how many of them are wrote about numbers? Virtually none. Why? And it's the, and, you know, and, and, and it's the, it's the same thing, you know, with... Um, uh, oh, look... Uh, Oh, I've lost my train of thought because I'm going too fast. But it's about, it's about that thing of um, matching institutions demanding a certain type of poetry that matches a preconceived idea of yeah. who those people are. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. Yeah. But Peter, did you want to comment on, on any of this on concrete poetry definitions or anything uh, yeah, you just said? Yeah. Um, for me, um, I came writing initially straight poetry and I still write that. Um, but what appealed to me about concrete poetry is yeah, it's a visual aspect and, and in a way you can say a whole lot with 
very few visual elements, but it's not a painting because it relates to text or symbols of one kind. So it's, it's, it's a way of negotiating symbols in a visual way. Mm -hmm. And so like one of my poems in the um, anthology is, um, is it's called um, Cloud of Forgetfulness Number 3 and it's three turned around the wrong way. And it, ex it shares that experience of someone getting into that Alzheimer's thing where the texts, the words have started to move. Mm. Um, and so it, it just kind of ripples out a bit, you know, if you see what I mean. Yeah. But yeah. it's an image and it's a text that's talking to you. But it, it, it's not only reversed, the fact is that sort of the shape of the three is not equal top and bottom. And when you reverse it, you start to notice the kind of abnormality of the word three. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, which I... And, and I've done another one uh, called foreign. And the letter G, you know, the way the little ring and then the thing, and the, it does look foreign. Mm. There's no other word in the uh, letter in the alphabet lo looks as foreign as a printed G, if you see what I mean. And part of the, the thing about this kind of effort is that through highlighting text and symbols in different ways is you see them in a different way. Just like, you know, in the surrealist thing, you might see a hand on a chessboard and you look at both of them differently. You know? mm. Or for the, sort of see them properly for the first time in some cases. You could say that yeah. too, yeah. yeah. Did yeah. you want to add anything, Vicky? To the initial prompt. Uh, or any of it. Yeah, I suppose it's good for me to come last because essentially everything I know about concrete poetry I've been taught by collective effort in some way or another, you know, taking a look back at the early magazines, what struck me was their desire to educate everybody. Like, I was mentioning the lists of books that you could get, giving license to people, giving license to people in their surrounds about this thing that they too could do. Um, but, you know, working backwards <laughs> from collective effort, I've, um, I really have so much admiration for this constrained form. It's a form of, of writing that gives you so many limits so you can really like become limitless um, as an art form and it wasn't until you know the concrete poetry movement arrived that visual artists um, realized how slack they'd been about language and, and it wasn't until even after the conceptual art movement that artists realized they couldn't just unthinkingly use words all the time. There's a lot of um, classic conceptual art where words are standing in for nothing. You know, the, the, they're supposed, you know, there's not supposed to be any artwork there. You know, it's just conceptual, but the words are still there and they're, they're treating the words as if they're nothing. They're uh, just decoration in some way. Well, they're just an idea. They're just in, in your head, but uh, in order to communicate them, you know, you've had to write them down, print them out. Uh, and, and they're exhibiting something as if it's not there, but it, but it is. And so it took um, the poets coming in and kind of bulldozing that 
that idea that that these words and are, are not there mm-hmm. um it's a real service that they've done to visual art <laughs> i'd say yeah right could i add one other thing too like when when the, when i became conscious of concrete poetry around about the same time and with a number of, of us i think we became conscious of sound poetry mm. That's right. uh, at the same time there's partly the stream coming from from overseas but yeah and and one thing about both is that whereas it probably mentioned a traditional poem sound poem often takes a fragment of sound or a statement or a phrase and plays with it so you hear the words and the sounds differently and you can communicate a lot with a few Mm. a few words or sounds you know Mm. Um, yeah (coughs) this is so important this this connection that i couldn't even get straight in my brain that that sound poetry and concrete poetry are um married are married Mm. and that's what off the record perhaps helped me see as an anthology and and they're connected with Mm. art and with poetry Mm. because Mm. poetry and art use elements in both of them Mm. One thing I did want to ask here is and about, music and music as well. Uh, Berio, oh, for instance, Berio's uh, <coughs> homage to James Joyce is is using the text and voices of it, and you know, so sound poetry and and some of the modern music, you know, the experimental is running in a in a kind of parallel sort of. Well, James story. Joyce is a sound poet. I mean, yeah, yeah Before I knew he was writing in dialect, I thought he was an absolute madman who's just doing an orchestra. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it was, you know, I didn't realise it was a dialect. You know? yeah, yeah. So I, I do want to dig in a little bit more to this question of the place of this type of work in institutions and the academy. And in the press release for the exhibition, it says that this con- concrete poetry it's talking about in particular has been neglected by both art historians and literary historians. And I guess my question is, why? Because to me that seems absurd, but there well, must be a reason. I mean, it's, I think, because of, in poetry, it's the mir- militarisation of language because everyone's like, a poem has to look like this, don't get the apostrophe in the wrong place. It's absolutely scandalous, you know, <laughs> that, that sort just, of thing. I mean, don't we, don't we need to have a, the apostrophe in the right place? No. We don't? No, we don't. Well, Not well, always. I mean, you well, can use apostrophes for all sorts of things as decoration. You can use them for exclamation or you can experiment. Yeah, it could be a picture. And it's the same with visual artists. Visual art is very narrow in many ways too. You're either a painter, you're a sculptor. Um, you know, there's so many categories, even in ceramics. If you're a potter or a ceramicist, make pots like that, but don't really put language on them, for instance. You know, like all the different forms of art and poetry have their very set, rigid channels that they seem to accept much more. And this type of work is about hybrid. So it's, because I think that's where the interesting stuff always is. It's in the hybrid parts between this and that. It's wayward. It's wayward, yeah. But but, but you said about that apostrophe, you know, it's okay if you're white and you want your militarisation all in the proper place, but if you're a migrant and your apostrophe doesn't fit there Mm. because your your dialect of the English language is now different, 
you have to put it somewhere else. Okay. Right? And like in my first book on the back cover, I wrote, fuck the spelling. Because people at work told me I couldn't be a poet because I couldn't spell. So the point is the blue-eyed dictionary, as they call it, has to be dispensed with, has to be reinvented. And the best way to do that is to listen. And sound poetry comes into that. Because by listening to the language, you are then writing who you are, who your world is, the rhythms that come from your world, which are different from someone who's listening to hip-hop or rock and roll or, or rock or, or listening or metal to their or lecturers at the university. That's right. Yeah. Very much. Okay. You know. And, and yeah. another thing, if you're looking at the academy, it doesn't tend to look at these forms of concrete poetry as such. It tends to write a history of the vorticists in Italy or the Dadaists or the uh, Fluxus and look at there the, the, the form emerges there and then you look at Fluxus. Oh, look, there right. it is again. It's like a uh, linear, you're not, yeah. You're not looking at the thing itself. Mm. It's just something that these odd characters these odd movements produce at different times, but the thing is there all along. Right. And, you know, the, the different people are, we're, we're interested in those sort of movements too. Um, and so there is a, a kind of a whole thing running, but people right. don't tend to look at that, you know. Yeah, no, that's definitely the way I was taught it, is kind of like there was Dada and it was around because it was mm. a reaction to the First World War mm. and, and then it, Stopped and then the next thing came. Well, isn't it disgusting how how modernism says the content doesn't matter, but as soon as they want to talk about Dadaism, they put it in a social context. Oh, it was before the war. It was after the war. It was during the war. It was post-war. It could have been war. It might have been war. You know, the, the whole socialization of it comes to their defense. But modernism has got no content. You know, that makes no sense to me, you know. And I should say, I think when I wrote that press release that you quoted at the beginning when I said, you know, the uh, Academy and uh, Literary and art, art Historical hadn't been interested in concrete poetry, I do really specifically mean the Australian um, context for that uh, because I do think that if, if these were North American artists and we were sitting in, in, in North America, Collective effort poets would have, you know, five PhDs deep. They would, they, they would have been looked at. They would have been ex examined and picked over, and 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 we're just, um, you know, catching up to our our detriment, really. What is that a cultural cringe thing? Is that a numbers game? What is it about? Us? Uh, is it... You know what Peter was saying. You can't. Um, you couldn't place things well enough we're just uh, we're not uh it's not the poet's fault and it's not the artist's fault they're always doing something interesting you know i've looked back as far as i can there's always something great happening it's the commentators just not being able to keep up not being able to be as imaginative and ambitious as our artists and poets have been yeah well done yeah well, yeah well said i think very well said that's making me think of um, somebody mm. like Annie Walwood as well. Oh, yes. Yeah, just not being adequately... You know, what do you do? What no, do you no, do? no, no, I mean, I had been adequately 
Uh, it's historic. Oh, she's been in every anthology in, in Australia, you know, for over 30, 40 years. It's not enough, you know, there's not yeah. enough. No, yeah, that, that may be we true. We want more, we want yeah, more because, annual awards. In, in, fact, yeah, in fact, the next issue we will be having annual awards oh. of unusual work. Yeah. Great, fantastic. Uh, yeah, but, but I'd like to um, uh, bring up something about, the, you know, the, the, the notion of poetry as what, what is not... Uh, um, uh, I, I came across this term with um, uh, Kenneth Slester, uh, Slester through the um, um, uh, uh, through the um, uh, Dutton and, um, uh, biography. And what happened is um, Kenneth Slester said that it is inadmissible that um, the uh, Garbo from Willamaloo uh, can write poetry. Inadmissible. Inadmissible. Now. This thing about, yeah, this is earlier on, it, it, it's part of it, it's quotable. Um, inadmi this thing about um, poetry and what is inadmissible about poetry. Like, concrete poetry is absolutely essential to the computer, the computer screen. The words are bouncing around. If they're bouncing around, they're doing concrete poetry. But it is inadmissible that the poets are involved. The designers have taken that over. It is inadmissible that poets can be oral because that is taken over by the writers which the universities and those structures foster. Every time poetry has a chance to do something, it becomes almost inadmissible that they be part of it that somebody else takes it as their own. And so we're left in this island surrounded by all these sharks who are taking bits and pieces and claiming it for themselves and leaving the, the concrete poetry notion or the tenet, of, the basic tenet of its root sort of uh, like, you know, uh, um, um, not engaging with it. Mm. But I think one of Pi's achievements is that in a way, the danger of the fringe is that it leaves no traces. <laughs> uh, yeah. Whereas Pi, I remember once at one of the meetings, of one of his anarchist friends said, anarchists have to write their own histories. Uh, and the thing is, Pi has produced the documents. All of the books, the magazines, they exist. Mm. Whereas, you know, otherwise, what, where would it all be? You mm. Know? Mm. Uh, and it's it's there. It can be seen, you know, whether it's looked at at the minute, but it it exists. It's in libraries. It's in in some of it's in galleries and so on. So, so in a way, it's not as if it doesn't exist. The establishment may not be looking at it, but it's there, and it won't disappear. You can hunt them down if you please. But it's you know it's remarkable how few people have taken collective effort up on the offer. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. That, that's true. I mean, finding. I mean, one of the great things about the, you know, the during the Russian Revolution or, or prior to it, you know, with, with the Futurists, was that it also went hand in hand with, you know, Shlovsky and Ikenbaum and all those theoreticians, you know, the, the the new critics, you know, who eventually created the what the new criticism. It wasn't called new criticism, but it was called um, um, the formalists. Yeah, mm -hmm. It was when the formalists and the futurists, which were overlapping with the people involved, I mean, 
uh, a lot a lot of the formalists were writing poetry as well as the poets writing essays in, in the formalist mode. It's when those two come together mm. that you have some great literature because you can bounce off an idea, you can throw an idea around and it can, it can grow, you know, whereas um, in Australia, our critics, I mean, it's really interesting, you know, a lot of the academics who got their education, you know, in the 70s and stuff, you know, who are my age and now, I suppose, went overseas to get their PhDs or whatever they got and they came over and they said, now, right, we've got this migrant problem we have to look at, you know. You look like a migrant. I think, we, we, why don't you write like a migrant, you know. I will, I will write essays about you, you know, as a migrant, you know. You look like a woman. We'll write essays about you as a woman, you know. I mean, these people, and, and, and this, was, this was really interesting, they were, they were mapping what they had learned from overseas onto the Australian scene instead of looking at the Australian scene and seeing what it was saying. You, can you see the difference yep. In, in, yep. In, in that mode? Yep. And Absolutely. in terms of concrete poetry, I've traced the significance of concrete poetry into the landscape tradition of Australia through Heidi because of Sweeney Reed. Sweeney Reed, without necessarily knowing what he was doing, because a lot of us don't know what we're doing anyway. Yeah, he was actually mapping himself into the tradition of landscape. But no one could see that, because concrete poetry to them was, as in, in Finlay Hamilton says, you know, he, he, he says like, you know, they, um, it, it's considered to be a, a, a child's art because they, you know, it's to be seen and not heard. You know, I mean, because, you know, we are kind of infantile because we make words jump around on the page. You know, something they wouldn't lower themselves to do, you know. Yeah, the, 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 the I often tell, um, or I kind of warn my art, art history students when I, when I get a chance to get in front of them that, you know, they're living as a parasite, as a, as a parasite discipline, you know, sucking off, of the artists. <laughs> <laughs> Is that in week one? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and week thirteen, just to make sure they got it. Yeah, um, yeah. But you you know they have to put them in their place, so to speak, to to remind them that they're not doing anything without these other figures. But like Pi mentioned, you don't get very far, or or you have to work all ten times harder. Um, if you don't have that sounding board, that critical sounding board, and, and we've always liked that, um, you know, in, in every facet of Australian culture, it's because, we you know, we're not um, ashamed, we shouldn't be ashamed of our artists, but we go, we should be ashamed of our critics. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> the, the, the other thing is, like, going back to that early period, you know, the, the Source Bookshop and also with Pies magazines and all of that, there was a sort of feeling of egalitarianism, you know, like Pi's talking of the establishment, but we all felt we could all have a go at everything, you know? Mm, mm, mm. And we draw off each other, he's doing this, oh, she's doing that, and it looks interesting, and you have a go at it. And, um, and, and I think in a way, because we, we sort of, we weren't uh, worried about what our audience might think too much, we could try all sorts of stuff over the years and say, like, I was very much on the page and then 
over time I, I turned to um, I became conscious of language in the language in the environment and 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 so the photo- great sound yeah and the photography yeah that's right mm-hmm. I picked up phrases you know like big banana and all that played with them but also you know things like um, like in the anthology I've got that little man that you see in German railway stations with his hands outstretched. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, and, yeah. and in a way, these signs, mm. um, you place them in context. You know, you've got the rails beneath, you've got the darkness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's almost like Germans has got a social democratic tradition. There is a sense that, you know, you do look after people. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, I was. And, I was and so, so in a way, sometimes the culture's embodied in the sign, mm. and the photograph helps you see a lot of what what is in the sign mm. and what is in the environment too. Yeah. So. But, but also, you know, uh, you know, with um, uh, Sandy's and 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 Thalia's work, you know, because they're kind of into the more the art end of the spectrum, um, <clears throat> is that they both try and make language substance substantial and the the going um uh, tenet of modernist ideology is that language is ephemeral it's out there in the ether you know there's nothing solid about it you know um and uh, but both like failure with the shorthand poetry is you know take take takes the word and reconfigures it into a squiggle and then puts it back in there on, on a canvas almost like to make it a substance you know sandy makes you know her you know her, her, her language out of material out of clay or wood or whatever and um and puts it as a substance so language is no longer invisible it's kind of like very visible and very there in your face, you know, on the wall or wherever. Mm. Um, mm. So, uh, so concrete poetry, in a sense, is actually breaking down all these notions of what literature should be, you know, and a lot of that notion that, you know, uh, poetry is, uh, 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 should be some kind of ephemera in, in, in the clouds that we know about, but it doesn't actually matter what kind of a squiggle it is, mm. is actually one of the lies. I mean, we don't, we don't know the universe outside the squiggles of the alphabet. And if you go and try and change the alphabet or add something to it, it is the last bastion of white racism. Is its, its, its alphabet. You try and get a name like Pi and put it into the alphabet. Oh man, they just won't take it. A lot of trouble with that. A lot of fucking trouble (laughs) with that. You know, they think it's an absolute assault on the language itself. You know, they can cop a lot, but assaulting the language, not a good idea. idea. I like just thinking of that. I think of one of Jazz's sound poems, Mm. which was Kill the Word Before the Word Kills You. Oh, yes, I think, yeah. So it's kind of like the way sound, image, they all merge, if you see what I mean. I do, and, I do, And it's, yeah. not, it's not like you have to produce this long text where this is this and this. It's kind of somehow things go sharply together mm. in small items mm. that then branch out in other 
wider sort of meanings. You know. Yeah, it's a threat. I'd, I'd like to bring the discussion down to, you know, um, why is concrete poetry um, not understood, but advertising is? Mm. Like, mm. you know, sparkalakalakaling mm. was the slogan of an ad for a, a soft drink. Yeah. Like, shreps. Another yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Catherine, That's a sound poem. Yeah, Catherine Kim, look at me, look at me, look at me. You know that, <laughs> right? You know, you know. So, 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 what happens is, you know, um, what I found it. If you put, if if I wrote, um, um, if I wrote sparkalakalakalinga, you know, that long, you know, meter long, on on a board. So you go sparkalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakalakal
to slur the public, to show how stupid they are, you know, with their, you know, um, jumping on the tram and doing, um, you know, and getting people to bring in, you know, his clothes while he gets dressed on the tram. You know, that kind of data thing was not a threat. But when Just Duke came to Australia, and, or came back to Australia, and he started reading poems, like one of the most horrendous poems that I've ever heard in my life, was Just Duke's, where he says, I remember the war in Vietnam. 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 He's not playing for a joke. Mm. No, Dardarism wasn't a joke. Mm. Dardarism was serious about changing the universe. And that is the difference between these people who take the comedy element of it and run with it. Yeah, take the threat away. They yeah. take the threat away. Yeah. I feel like what we need to do to wrap up is to just make the case for people to come and see this exhibition because we have, we've circled around it, but perhaps we haven't talked directly about what they're going to see when they come to the Nicholas Building between May 10th and 21st, is that correct? No, May 5th. We open on Friday, May 5th, and we go to the 21st. Yep. Uh, you know, but times are limited, so you have to get in fast. You've got to make an effort. Yeah. Yes. Make an effort. <laughs> Collective effort. So, um, in a couple of words, why should people go? Well, I mean, uh, just to start off, like, people don't have to go if they're not interested, you know, fuck yeah, them. No, 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 it's a very important part of the collective effort ethos that you don't um, you don't have to drag people along who are unwilling. Oh, I see. If they okay. don't, if they don't, if they're not, I think there's, you know, if they're not turned on, this is what Jazz wrote to, to Pi once after seeing a Fitzroy, you know, if people aren't turned on by this, uh, they won't be turned on by anything. And so it's, it's there for you to come and, and get engaged with, you know, this is a collective who's been working in Melbourne for over four decades. Um, they've done some of the most interesting work in concrete poetry in this country. And if you're not interested, fuck you, you know? <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Vicky. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I could just send it there. Does anyone else want to add anything I to that? I think you'll see language. You'll see language. Mm. You won't just read it. You won't hear it. You'll see it in a different way mm. in images. Mm. And that's something they won't see elsewhere. Beautiful. And hopefully it'll make people think, um, which is always a good thing with art, mm. just to get people to reconsider, to broaden their thinking about what language is or what poetry is, what visual art is as well. Mm. Someone someone's said, if you, you should be prepared to go to an exhibition and come out different to experience something and to be going prepared to experience something you've never experienced before mm. and i think this offers them that option Beautiful. they'll see something they'll feel something they've never had before mm. and we guarantee the money back or the entrance <laughs> fee <laughs> it's free isn't it? it is free yeah <laughs> Look at me, please. Look at me, Kim. 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 Look at
Edna, you've said to me, you've said that, uh, that he's dysfunctional, that he's a sick man. I've never thought you were well. I've thought oh, you've okay. lived your life through well, me. You know, I've been the famous one and you've been... Now, Kim, you are. Look at me, boys. Look at me, Kim. Look at me, Kim. Look at me. I'm looking. I'm looking. Kim. Kimmy, look at me, look at me, Kim, Kim, look at me, look at me, Kim. In creating this, dare, dare I, I say, say monster. monster. That when the time eventually does come. Kimmy, Kimmy, look at me, 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 look at me,